Okay. Uh, why don't? Uh, okay. So, this morning, our we're still working on our book, Ordinary, which um, finally found the word I want to use to characterize this book. This book is dense. <laughs> and and uh, uh, it sometimes takes some work to kind of uh, keep it all together. Uh, say what? Yeah. Anyway, uh, so why don't let's start with, a, let's open with a word of prayer and we'll rock and roll. Our gracious uh, God and Father, our Lord and Savior, our comforter and keeper. All of these, O oh Lord, are, are benefits that in, represent benefits that come from you and you alone and enter into our lives, <coughs> transforming us into creatures that we would we can in no other way become. Father, as we take this time set aside to uh, consider your word and your, um, and your calling, we just ask, Lord, that you would uh, open our hearts to your truth and your truth alone, that you would... Uh, protect us from error, and that in this hour you would take some of this and use it to sanctify us, continue your sanctification in our lives for your glory. Father, we thank you so much for the privilege that it is to know you, to have peace with you to be your children. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so today my topic is called God's Ecosystem. But before I dive straight into the God's Ecosystem, I thought we'd do a bit of review. Um, and So we'll start with, he actually has a statement on page 126 of his book in which he actually states his thesis. He even calls it, my thesis. My thesis in this book is that we must turn from the frantic search for something more to something more sustainable. We need to stop adding something more of ourselves to the gospel. We need to be content with the gospel as God's power for salvation. We also need to be content with His ordinary means of grace that over time, Yield a harvest of plenty for everyone to enjoy. Okay? So, kind of want to pay pretty close attention, especially to the the latter part, this last sentence. We also need to be content with His ordinary means of grace that over time yield a harvest of plenty for everyone to enjoy. Um, that's kind of going to be a bit of the focus of God's ecosystem. And when we get there, try to keep this little line in, in mind as we go through what he says. Oh, don't you do that to me. Um, 
Okay, so we'll start out with, let's look at his chapters uh, that he has covered. So he divides his book into two halves. There is the radical and the restless, the ordinary and content. So obviously the first part of his book is uh, devoted to developing what he sees are problems in evangelicalism today and, um, and its attempts to make the gospel relevant to the world in which we live. Okay? And then his second half, Ordinary and Content, obviously he's working on, okay, if, if this is the problem, what does he see as the solution? And so he presents his ideas as to what we need to do in order to recapture what it is that God has called us to do. Okay, so under Radical and Restless, he has these titles, The New Radical. Ordinary Isn't Mediocre. The Young and the Restless. The Next Big Thing. Ambition, How Vice Became a Virtue. And Practicing What We Preach, No More Super Apostles. Okay? So, other than the fact that in the first couple of chapters, he kind of lays out a, uh, an overview and everything. And the, in chapter 2, I think he spent a little bit of time kind of defending his notion of ordinary. Other than that, this whole first section is devoted to developing his analysis of what's going on in our culture today. Then in the second half, we have contentment, which we've covered. We don't need another hero. God's ecosystem, stop dreaming and love your neighbor, and after ordinary, anticipating the revolution. Okay, so, um, like I said, I've, I have found this book to be a bit dense, and, I, and, and so I've sp- I spent some time trying to think, how do I summarize, how do I try to summarize what it is that he's saying? And I came up with this little workflow. Um, We'll go through it and then maybe take a moment to talk about it a little bit. Okay. So here's our world. Well, you know, if you want to do an overview, you got to step back. (laughs) Uh, In the real, in, in reality... There are two kingdoms living on this world. There's the kingdom of man, and there's the kingdom of God. Okay? The kingdom of God is the church. It's the visible kingdom. The church is the visible kingdom in the here and now. Our now. Okay? This material world now. Okay? The church is the kingdom of God in the here and now. So there's two kingdoms living on this world. Now this is, Horton does not actually explicitly go to this passage, but I believe that this passage kind of underpins everything that he's talking about. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. All authority in heaven and in earth has been given to me. 
Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Here is a king giving a charge to his subjects. The kingdom of God. Okay? Okay. So the question is, how do we fulfill this charge? Okay? How do we impact our world in order to fulfill this charge? Well, there's two ways to go about it. There's the way that we're trying to go about it right now. As according to Horton, there's the way we're going about it right now. And perhaps there's a better way. Okay, so. Right now, in our world today, we make two very fundamental assumptions. The first assumption is the unassailable right to personal autonomy. And now, how does that manifest itself? I actually had a video clip uh, that I was going to do, but for in the interest of time, I took it out. <laughs> Wasted hours getting that ready, but nevertheless. Uh, of uh, Will Smith and, a, and, a, uh, and a, an award acceptance. But I uh, decided, mm. It manifests itself in this idea. You can be anything you want to be, you can do anything you want to do. We tell ourselves that. We certainly tell our kids that as a culture. Okay? But we got people out there all over the place telling us, if you just believe, you can do what everything, anything you want to do. Right? Okay? And that is filtered down into the church. Okay. The second thing as a culture is the quest for the next big thing. Anymore, if it ain't big, it ain't worth our time. You know? I mean, if, if, there, if it doesn't, if, if it's not something grand or grandiose, I mean, we quickly lose interest, right? Okay, and in a culture like that, how does the church, you know, Compete. So it brings about cries for radical. Radical change. Radical ideas. A radical difference. You can put those two together and what do you need? You need an army of superheroes. Okay? So that, I believe, as a broad overview, is the first half of Horton's book. Okay? There's a bit more, and we'll touch on it in just a second. In the second half of the book, Horton proposes that, no, that's really not how God has designed this to work. God has designed this to work in ordinary ways. Ordinary lives, ordinary churches ordinary grace, 
ordinary love poured into our neighbors. Who are our neighbors? They're all of us, and they are those that we encounter on a day-to-day basis. Through the ordinary means of grace that comes to us in large part through the church, God is able to deliver his benefits to his kingdom. And the overflow flows into the kingdom of man. And that is how God has designed impacting his, for his people to impact the world. Okay? So that's my, I believe, is basically the over, overarching kind of idea that Horton is trying to teach us. Okay, so on the left-hand side, what does the left-hand side produce? Well, it produces the vice of ambition. We, come, we must become ambitious for the kingdom of God. How do we do that? By building the next big thing, by building brand, okay, By coming up with new and fresh ideas that capture the imagination of today's culture. Right? And ambition in our world has been turned on its head. Its moral bearing has been turned. And what was once considered a vice is now the virtue. On the right hand side is the virtue of contentment in which we are satisfied with the ordinary that God has put in place in order for his kingdom to thrive. But this contentment, its moral bearing in our culture has also been turned. And so that Contentment is now somewhat of a negative word because it means you're not ambitious. It means you you possibly aren't trying all that hard, that sort of thing. And so now it's become a vice. Contentment can be viewed as slothfulness, as not caring, and those sorts of things. All right? So before we move on, I'll open this up to the teachers. How do you feel about this? What am I missing? In terms of what he's saying. Blake. If we take this seriously, this is still very hard work.
One of, one of the things that kind of stood out to me when I, as I was putting this together is this first statement of God, Jesus, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. We don't often, I don't think we really quite understand what that means. And I'm not sure that we really believe what he's saying. I mean, if you look out there and you see the world, you're like going, I'm not sure it is, you know, kind of thing. But, huh? And he's a little help from us. Yeah, okay. Well, that's one way you could. I mean, that's that's one tendency. I mean, there's there's any number of things that might pass. I mean, and 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 so I, st- I stopped and I said, well, let's take this at face value. Why am I such a coward? My king has all authority. Why am I so afraid? Why am I so fearful for my grandchildren? Because I tell you, I am fearful for my grandchildren. Do I take, and when I am, am I taking him seriously? Well, one of the things that I think we, f- we miss or we forget is that not all blessings are easy. Okay? Not all blessings are easy. And yes, there could, be try- there could very well be trying times ahead. But those trying times will present opportunities to do just this right here in some fashion. And if we train up our children rightly, so that even in very difficult, hard situations, they can learn to be content and still strive for the kingdom, they will be fine. Okay. Yes, sir. So, not only are we called to be content under trials, but we're called to uh, count trials joy. Right? So, to me, something that's apparent in this life that has not been apparent up until this point, although we've talked about how idolatry has an individual component of a Yes, and hold that thought. I mean, y'all, y'all remember this, this, his notion that 
that how how we have how this the idolatry that is demonstrated, especially on the left hand side. Okay, now keep that in mind. That's kind of he's he's bringing. He, okay, yes, sir. <laughs> he said that in our culture today, this is ordinary and this is radical. How can submission, humility, love, and grace justify That's right. It is a radical concept to initiate a kingdom in abject humility and death. Followed by resurrection and ascension, okay? But nevertheless, to an, um, all right, we'll get there. All right, moving on. Okay, so I, I feel like that there are a few key concepts that we need to remind ourselves of. First one is the kingdom of God. And I have underneath down here, I have 10 slides of passages that I wanted to go through. But I don't have enough time, Okay. So I'm just going to summarize a, uh, a bit from what I got from those passages. They, they started in Exodus. The kingdom of God, the, the revelation of the kingdom of God starts in Exodus. It finds serious revelation in David. Okay, If you look at some of his psalms and some of the charge that he gave to Solom- Solomon, God revealed to David much about the coming kingdom, okay? David already knew that the kingdom would last forever. David already knew he would have a son that would sit on the throne that would be something more than human, okay? It's apparent in some of the things that he said and in some of his psalms, okay? And then there's the prophets. They talk, they, the, the kingdom is seen in the prophets of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea. Okay, and then we come to the New Testament, and what's the first thing that comes on the scene? There's a man walking around the Jordan River, and he's preaching, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Okay, so what are some things that we can draw from all of that? Well, one, it is a mighty kingdom, okay? And it provides everlasting benefits to its members. It also will provide justice in the form of everlasting judgment to those who are not its members. It is at hand, meaning that it is already made visible within the church, and yet it is not yet. For Jesus has not returned to gather the wheat and the weeds. Okay? This, this, this here was, a little, was quite, quite helpful to me. A bit of a revelation and very helpful to me. The difference between contractual and covenantal relationships. All right, so let's talk about contractual relationships. 
Contractual relationships begin with the assumption that both parties are autonomous. All right? And so we make a contract to give up some of our freedom in exchange for certain benefits from the other party. Right? And as long as both parties are satisfied with what they're getting out of the contract, well, the contract remains in force. The minute somebody, though, becomes dissatisfied with what they're getting, they're not necessarily completely free, but it's not that hard to get out of the contract, all right, and move on. Contracts work really good for the ambitious and the avarice. They become vehicles to getting what they want when they want it, okay? The covenantal relationship, by contrast, God is the sovereign creator and Lord, and we are his creatures. That's where it starts. We are God's image bearers, accountable for how we relate to him and for how we relate to one another. God provides the benefits. We receive them. He will never stop being God. And we can never get out of being his image bearers. The vertical relationship here is one of dependence. And the horizontal relationship here is one of servanthood. It is a relationship that works well for those who are grateful and content in it. I've never heard this before. And uh, it's pretty helpful. I really especially like, like this part right here. The vertical and the horizontal in a covenantal relationship. Our relationship, our covenantal relationship with one another, what is it? What is it? Is it not to serve one another for the glory of God? We have that covenant. And the nice thing about it is we can't get out of it. We got to do it. God gives us no choice. Okay? All right. Oh, shoot. I'm sorry. Here we go. Rob? He has this statement in his book on page 89. Our ingratitude is the clearest expression that we have idolized ourselves. I want you all to stop and ponder that for just a minute. Our ingratitude is the greatest expression that we have idolized ourselves. Now, there are people in here who are going through some really tough times, some some hard stuff at the moment. And it's pretty easy when you're going through hard stuff to become ungrateful. 
Okay? Because you don't like what's happening to you. What is this saying? What's happened to you? If that's where you're at. I'm not saying they're not hard. I'm not saying you don't want to be there. I'm not saying that it, it isn't difficult or anything like that. But do we believe that all authority has been given to Christ? And do we believe that He intends for us to benefit in His kingdom? Do we believe those things? Can we find a way to be grateful in the midst of the hardship? Okay, means of grace. He talks a lot about the means of grace because, of course, that is how traditionally it has been viewed that God's blessings flow to His people. They come to us through His means of grace. They are the, they are the, the channels in which God's benefits come to the people who are the visible kingdom at that time, moment, in time. Okay? And so he, 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 he has a, an ex, a number of places, and I have kind of pulled together as much as I could some of the things that he talks about in his book. Um, on page 17, he hits the big three. The big three are the, 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 the big three in terms of the ordinary means of grace are word, sacrament, and prayer. Okay? Those are the big three. But there are others, as he talks about. So preaching, the sacraments, baptism, and the Lord's Supper, prayer, praise, teaching, and fellowship. Those are all other ways in which God's benefits flow to us. On page 23, he talks about the ordinary life of the church as being a means of grace. He also talks about communal prayers again. And I changed communal prayers, praise, laments, and fellowship. Again, within the context, I believe, of the church, the communal, uh, where we pray and we praise, we confess and lament and fellowship. On page 25, he talks about modeling and mentoring. And on page 179, he talks about accountability. Page 180, public confession of sin and public confession of faith. So there's some ideas about how God's benefits can flow to us, down to us. He has this statement on page 14. God showers His extraordinary gifts through ordinary means of grace. He loves us through ordinary fellow image bearers. And He sends us out into a world to love and serve others in ordinary callings. So consistent with His view of covenant, this statement is very consistent with His view of covenant. And the, covenant relation, and the covenantal relationship that we have with God, okay, and His calling to us. All right, so let's, let's move on to my chapter. I got 15 minutes. 
<laughs> it's a good thing I took out the, the slides on kingdom, right? Uh, okay, kingdom. So what are some of the biblical analogies of kingdom that we see in the Bible? Okay, well, we see seed, wheat, mustard seed, fig tree, land owner, and a plot of ground, sheep, harvest, vine. What is common about all of those? What are those? What do they look like? Say what? It's very agrarian, right? Basically, God started with a garden, okay? And he stuck with the analogy through Scripture, okay? It's what, lowly? Lowly and slow. Okay. Well, that, 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 okay. When we start applying the analogies, we get we all right. Okay. Now with the church, it changes a little bit. We have body, bride, building, or or some. Okay. So um, the thing, though, that I would have you notice that these are not institutional. These are not institute. No, none of these analogies are an institution. Every one of these analogies are organic. All right? What does that signify? Well, an organism is living. And it's dynamic. It's always changing. It has dependencies. It can be harmed and damaged. It requires feeding and constant care. And it's complex. The simplest organisms are complex. Okay? So God's garden. He, he goes through and he, and he gives these passages as examples of, 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 of the analogy of the kingdom of God in terms of a garden. And so in Psalms, we see a tree beside a stream. In Jeremiah, and Isaiah and Jeremiah, it's a vineyard. In Jeremiah, it's a vine. I think you'll see vineyard and vine are, are pretty, are, are probably the most common. A tree that doesn't, and does and doesn't bear fruit in Matthew. Seeds sown on different soil, wheat amongst the, sown among, which is sown with, amongst the weeds. Uh, a mustard seed. The fruitless fig tree in a vineyard that is cut down. In uh, Matthew, there's more vineyards. And in John 15, vine and branches. What vine do you think Jesus had in mind when he used that analogy? Any old vine? No, sir. A vine that sits in a vineyard. A grapevine. Okay? Well, all right. Okay, so what are some common threads? These, these are common threads that he comes up with. It is his kingdom. Oh, I'm sorry, the first four are his, the last one is mine. Um, it is his kingdom. There is no personal relationship with Christ, the vine, apart from his church, the branches. The growth of the kingdom and each member of it is slow. It takes a lot of work. And I thought... You know, another common thread, in, or another thing that we really need to draw from this, there must be fruit. The fig tree gets cut down because it doesn't bear fruit. The, vine, the branches are pruned if they don't bear fruit. Okay, and then he has a section called reduce, reuse, recycle. 
Okay, so reduce. We need to reduce the distractions and the voracious consumption that, that our cultures insist that we do. Um, reuse the resources that God has given us from the past. We know we, uh, we tend to think that they don't, didn't work at some point in time, so they're no good, all right? And yet he points to Acts 2.42, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. What is that? Pretty much the ordinary means of grace, right? Okay, recycle. This involves two moves. It involves returning to the sources and accepting them, adapting them to our time and place. So what does he mean by sources? And then, and here he's, we start getting into specifics. Orton's going to argue that we should re-embrace the notion of catechism and that we, should, that we should adapt that to the teaching of our young. He's going to argue that we need to re-embrace the notion of creed because it, it synthesizes key things that we must keep ever before us if we are to live appropriately and covenantally in God's kingdom. He's going to argue that we understand we, we, we know and we understand the confessions because there we find in its briefest form a complete overview of the law of God. Okay? Um, he basically says these are tried and tested forms. They work. But in all of these cases, it is important to remember that the reason we use them and their purpose and their place in the sanctification of the church and of the individual. In other words, we must remember they're not there for in and of for themselves. Their purpose, their purpose is to sanctify and edify the church and its members. Okay? And if they don't, they're not being properly adapted. Personal disciplines. Within the church, is there catechesis? Is there submission to elder leadership? Are we using the means of grace? Within the family, Devotions of reading and instruction, singing and prayer. Is there healthy conversation? Is there freedom to doubt? In personal devotions, Bible reading, instruction, meditation and prayer. And so we need to ask, are there disciplines in our church? Are there disciplines in our families? Are there disciplines? Is there discipline in my life? Okay, what has happened to these disciplines? Okay, so here's some quotes from him. In a land that increasingly defies any external authorities, personal faith and responsibility now mean that no human being 
or even a council of human beings can interfere with the individual's personal relationship with God. The United States is the first nation in history to make personal choices the heart of its creed. In this, the churches are not only influenced, but also influencers, especially as the sovereign will of the individual overruns all levies that have been formed by both classical and biblical traditions. Again, the almost unassailable, and it's not almost, today, personal autonomy is unassailable in almost every culture, in almost all of our, throughout our culture. I mean, just this week, Moeller on the briefing talked about a case in Europe in which a, an individual is suing a church organization because that individual, because the church organization as a, as a term of, in, of, of employment requires that you be a member of the church. I mean, how are you going to uphold the the, the, you know, do the work of the church, that church, if you don't, if you're not a member of it and you don't hold to its tenets. And this employee is suing because they weren't, this person is suing because they weren't hired because they're not a member of the church. And in fact, they don't even believe the tenets of the church. But, but they still contend that they are able to fill the job for which they have applied. And the court it's a, it's, it's a German case. The, the German court pushed it up to the EU, and an EU judge found in favor of the plaintiff. Okay. When public disciplines, especially the weekly service, lose their hold on us, family and private disciplines are sure to follow. The weekly service of the word and sacrament along with public confession of sin and faith, the prayers and praise are the fountain, I love this, the fountain that flows into our homes and private rooms throughout the week. It is all of these disciplines, public, family, and private, that we need to recover. Emerging branches, how do we grow the children? Okay, I don't know if you've noticed, but here of late, you're starting to hear voices that it's it's a little it, it's you know so people are starting to question is it right for parents to indoctrinate their children when their children are so young and don't really have the faculties to discern okay and we're starting to hear some voices you know here and there raising the question is that is that allowed should that be allowed okay Horton points out that we're already doing this. Um, and you, and with this advertising, ad, and he's, he's quoting an advertiser here. It's not him. Advertising at its best is making people feel that without their product, you're a loser. Kids are very sensitive to that. You open up emotional vulnerabilities and it's very easy to do with kids because they're the most emotionally vulnerable. Okay, that's a statement of an advertiser. All right? What is our culture doing? 
It's advertising to our kids. Okay, right. One of my, I hate to admit this, but one of my favorite shows, Longmire, got canceled because only old people were watching it, okay? None of the young ones were, okay? All right. I love this one, too. The church isn't doing that. In fact, the problem is that our children increasingly have not even been given enough of the Christian faith to even apostatize from it. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> I mean, they, they basically... They, we're, some of our children are going off to college and they're really not even changing. Okay? All right. So, the eternal value of being in Christ, living in the vine, adding branches through our witness, and growing in his garden until he returns for the harvest, that should pervade our strategy sessions and fill our hearts with concern. So, he, he pretty much is saying, here should be our mission statement as a church. Living in the vine adding branches through our witness and growing in his garden until he returns. That should be, he's saying, our mission statement. It should concern all our decisions. Are we doing these things? Okay, so how's that done? Children should participate in the regular adult service. They may doodle and find it hard to attend to all that happens and it is, happens and is said but they should be treated as full members of the household of God. The benefit of this is baptism shows them their union with Christ and with those who they sit next to in church. The Lord's Supper to see the benefits given to me, what is done for me, what is done to me. Prayer modeled in public encourages and reinforces the family and personal life. The minister that participates in the teaching of the children helps affirm that they too are members of the flock teaching the catechism. At the grammar stage, creed, confession, and I would add the Bible stories. Our children are growing up biblically illiterate because we don't even teach them the stories. And the stories are, at, you know, at a child's age are cool. They're neat. I remember my grandmother and her flannel graph. I loved the stories. At the logic stage, allow and encourage the hard questions. Seek to provoke right behavior, not by teaching do's and don'ts, but by teaching how to think rightly. All right. So, here is a vineyard. Okay, here are some instructions on how you set up the vine. Okay, I am the vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean 
because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and your joy may be full. One last thought. There are two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of man. In that kingdom we have weeds and thistles, thorns, pests, and drought. There is also the kingdom of God. And in that kingdom we see sunlight, rain, nutrients, grooming, protection. Horton proposes that there is a beltway that stands between the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. I'm sorry, I'm jumping ahead of myself. In the, so what might these represent in our, our analogy here? Self-autonomy, ambition, avarice, strife, and sin. In the kingdom of God, what we have is a vertical relationship of dependence and gratitude. And we have a horizontal relationship of love and service. Horton proposes that there is a beltway that stands between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. What is a beltway? A beltway is a stretch of land that is, that is turned into green space. No other development can take place upon it. In uh, early times medieval times, they would build these belt rays around the town, kind of as a barrier between the wild that existed beyond, okay? And that beltway is the Lord's Day. It is through the Lord's Day that we find the fullest fulfillment of word, prayer, sacrament, preaching, teaching, and fellowship. It is where it is how we are refreshed and become green in the midst of death. It is a time, it is the time set aside for an explicit purpose. It provides a barrier from the incursion of the world into our souls. 
He concludes his chapter with this. With the gospel, even this world takes on a different light. We begin to see more colors, to taste more flowers, flavors, to enjoy this life in ways that before seemed impossible. Yet it is especially in Christ's body that the new world, and I love this, you guys listen to me much, the real world comes alive to us. Observing the health, wealth, and happiness of the wicked, Asaph confesses, my feet almost stumbled. But then he entered the sanctuary and everything began to fall into place. Similarly, every time we hear God's word, witness a baptism, receive the supper, and join in the common confession, prayer, and praise, the familiar world of the work week seems like a passing shadow. Its siren songs become faint as we hear the strains of a stirring symphony approaching we begin to taste morsels of the wedding feast that is being prepared even through these ordinary means something extraordinary has arrived is arriving will arrive but we wait for it patiently Thanks for being so attentive. That's it.